0: We at Amazing Stories are thankful for and gracefully accept the donations we receive from our listeners from across the world who count on the unique programming we provide. You too can donate through the link provided in the description section of each episode. Please keep in mind that the continued support from our growing audience helps us fulfill our mission of bringing you a new Amazing Story every day. Thank you for listening and we hope you continue to enjoy our stories. On those cloudy days, Robert Neville was never sure when sunset came, and sometimes they were in the streets before he could get back. If he had been more analytical, he might have calculated the approximate time of their arrival, but he still judged nightfall by the sky, and on those cloudy days, that method didn't work. That was why he chose to stay near the house on those days. He walked around the house in the gray afternoon, checking each window to see if any of the boards had been loosened. After violent attacks the planks were often split or pried off, and he had to replace them. A job he hated. Today only one plank was loose. Isn't that amazing? he thought. In the backyard he checked the hot house and its water tank. Both were undamaged today. He went to the house for his tools. As he entered, he looked at the distorted reflection of himself in the cracked mirror fastened to the door. In a few days, jagged pieces of the glass would start to fall. Let him, he thought. It was the last damn mirror he'd put there. It wasn't worth it. He'd use garlic instead. Garlic always worked. He passed through the dim silence into his bedroom, once the room had been warmly decorated, but that was another time. Now it was entirely functional, and since Neville's bed and bureau took up so little space, he had converted one side of the room into a shop. He took a hammer and nails from the bench, returned outside, and nailed a plank fast to the shutter. For a while he stood on the front lawn regarding the silent length of Cimarron Street. He was a tall man with a long, determined mouth and bright blue eyes, which moved now over the charred ruins of the neighboring houses. He'd burned them down to prevent them from jumping on his roof from the adjacent ones. He took a long, slow breath and went back to the house, lit another cigarette, and had his mid-morning drink. It was almost noon. Robert Neville was in his hothouse collecting garlic. In the beginning it had made him sick to smell it in such quantity. Now the smell was in his house and clothes, and sometimes he thought it was even in his flesh. When he had enough, he went back to the house and dumped them on the sink. As he flicked the wall switch, the light flickered and then flared into normal brilliance. A disgusted hiss passed his clenched teeth. The generator was at it again. He sat down with an exhausted grunt and began to separate the clothes. He reached over, took an ice pick from the rack, punched holes in each clove, then strung them all together with wire until he had twenty-five necklaces. When finished, he nailed them outside over the window boarding, taking down the old strings which had lost their potent smell. He went through this twice a week, and until he found something better, it was his first line of defense. Defense, he often thought. For what? All afternoon he made stakes, lathing them out of thick dowling. These he held against the whirling emery stone until they were sharp as daggers. It was tiring, and no matter how many stakes he made, he never seemed to get ahead. They were gone in no time at all. It was all very depressing, and it made him resolve to find a better method of disposal. But how, when they never gave him a chance to even think? As he lathed, he listened to Beethoven over the loudspeaker. It helped to fill the terrible void of hours. His gaze kept shifting to the clock on the wall. In another hour, they'd be at the house again, as soon as the light had gone. After he'd finished, he stepped outside. The sky was darkening. He looked up and down Cimarron Street, the cool breeze ruffling his hair. That's what's wrong with these days. You never knew when they were coming. Oh, well, at least they were better than those damned dust storms. With a shrug, he moved back across the lawn and into the house to prepare his dinner, locking and bolting the door behind him. He stopped, his eyes moving quickly to the clock. 6.25 today. Ben Cortman was shouting, ''Come out, Neville!'' Robert Neville sat down with a sigh and began to eat. He sat in the living room, reading a physiology text while the music of Schoenberg played loudly over the speakers. Not loudly enough, though. He still heard them outside, their murmuring and their cries, their snarling. And they were all there for the same thing. He wished he had time to soundproof the house even after five months, it got on his nerves. He never looked at them anymore. In the beginning, he'd made a peephole in the front window, but then the women had seen him and started striking vile postures in order to entice him out of the house. He knew he could put plugs in his ears to shut off the sound of them, but that would shut off the music, too, and he didn't want to feel they were forcing him into a shell. He closed his eyes. It was the women who made it so difficult. The women posing like lewd puppets on the possibility that he'd see them and decide to come out. A shudder ran through him. Every night it was the same. He'd think about soundproofing the house. Then he'd think about the women. Deep in his body the heat began. He tried to read, his lips forming each word slowly, but in a moment the book was on his lap. All the knowledge in those books couldn't put out the fire in him. All the words of centuries couldn't end the mindless craving of his flesh. The realization made him sick. It was an insult. All right, it was a natural drive, but there was no outlet anymore. They'd forced celibacy on him. He'd have to live with it. You have a mind, don't you? He asked himself. Well, use it. He reached over and turned the music up louder, then forced himself to read a whole page without pause. He read about blood cells, about lymphocytes and phagocytes. He shut the book with a thud. Why didn't they leave him alone? Did they think they could all have him? Why do they keep coming every night? Above the noise, he heard Ben Cortman shout as he always shouted, Come out, Neville! Some day I'll get that bastard, he thought. Some day I'll knock a stake right through his chest a foot long with ribbons on it. Tomorrow he'd soundproof the house. He couldn't stand thinking about the women. If he didn't hear them, maybe he wouldn't think about them. The music ended. He could hear them even more clearly. He reached for the first new record and put it on the turntable, twisted the volume to its highest point. The Year of the Plague by Roger Lia filled his ears. Violins scraped and whined. Flutes played weird atonal melodies. With a stiffening of rage, he wrenched up the record and snapped it over his right knee. He meant to break it long ago. It was no use. You couldn't beat them at night. He'd go to bed and put the plugs in his ears. It was what he ended up doing every night anyway. Quickly, trying not to think, he went to the bedroom and undressed. He looked at the ornate cross he had tattooed on his chest one night in Panama when he'd been drunk. What a fool I was in those days, he thought. Well, maybe that cross had saved his life. He jammed in his earplugs and a great silence engulfed him. He lay on the bed and took deep breaths, hoping for sleep. But the silence didn't help. He could still see them out there, the white-faced men prowling around his house, looking ceaselessly for a way to get in at him, some of them crouching on their haunches like dogs, eyes glittering, teeth slowly grating together, and the women. Did he have to start thinking about them again? He tossed over on the sheet, his face pressed into the hot pillow, and lay there, breathing heavily, body writhing. Let the morning come. Dear God, let the morning come. He dreamed about Virginia, And he cried out in his sleep, his fingers gripping the sheets like frenzied talons. The alarm went off at 5.30 and Robert Neville reached out in the morning gloom and pushed in the stop. After a few moments he got up, walked into the dark living room and opened the peephole. Outside on the lawn the dark figures stood like silent soldiers on duty. As he watched, he heard them muttering discontentedly. Another night was ended. He went back to the bedroom and dressed. As he was pulling on his shirt, he heard Ben Cortman cry out, "'Come out, Neville!' After that, they all went away, weaker, he knew, than when they had come, unless they had attacked one of their own. They did that often." There was no union among them. Their need was their only motivation. The first thing he did when he went outside was to look at the sky. It was clear. He could go out today. As he crossed the porch, his shoe kicked some pieces of the mirror. Well, the damn thing broke, just as I thought. One of the bodies was sprawled on the sidewalk, the other half concealed in the shrubbery. They were both women, They were almost always women. He unlocked the garage, backed his station wagon into the morning crispness, and walked over to the women. There was certainly nothing attractive about them in the daylight, he thought, as he dragged them across the lawn and threw them onto the canvas tarpaulin laid out in the station wagon. There wasn't a drop left in them. Both were the color of fish out of water. He raised the rear gate of the car and fastened it. He went around the lawn then, picking up stones and bricks and putting them in a sack, which he tossed into the station wagon. When that was done, he fetched his bag of steaks and buckled on the holster that held his mallet. He wouldn't bother searching for Ben Cortman that morning. There were too many other things to do. For a second he thought about the soundproofing. The hell with it, he thought. I'll do it some other cloudy day. He got into the station wagon and checked his list for the day, Lay that Sears. That was first. He started the car and headed for Compton Boulevard. On both sides of him the houses stood silent and against the curb cars were parked, empty and dead. Robert Neville eyed the fuel gauge. There was still half a tank, but he might as well stop on Western Avenue and fill it. There was no point in using any of the gasoline stored in the garage until he had to. He pulled into the silent station and braked, He got a barrel of gasoline and siphoned it into his tank, checked the oil, water, and tires. Everything was in good condition. It usually was, because he took special care of the station wagon, if it ever broke down so that he couldn't get back to the house by sunset. If it ever happened, that was the end. He continued up Compton Boulevard through all the silent streets, There was no one to be seen anywhere, but Robert Neville knew where they were. The fire was always burning. As the car drew closer, he pulled on his gloves and gas mask and watched through the eyepieces the sooty pall of smoke hovering above the earth. The entire field had been excavated into one gigantic pit. That was in June, 1975. Neville parked the car and jumped out, anxious to get the job over with. Throwing the catch and jerking down the rear gate of the station wagon, he pulled out one of the bodies and dragged it to the edge of the pit. There he stood it on its feet and shoved. It bumped and rolled down the steep incline until it settled on the great pile of smoldering ashes at the bottom. Breathing harshly, he dragged the second body to the brink of the pit and pushed it over. Feeling as though he were strangling despite the gas mask, he hurried back to the car and sped away. After he'd driven half a mile, he skinned off the mask and took a long drink of whiskey. Sometimes he had to go to the burning pit every day for weeks at a time, and it always made him sick. Somewhere down there was Kathy. On the way to Inglewood, he stopped at a market to get some bottled water. As he entered the silent store, the smell of rotted food filled his nostrils. He pushed a metal wagon up and down the dust-thick aisles, the smell of decay setting his teeth on edge. He found the water bottles in back, as well as a flight of stairs leading up to an apartment. After putting the bottles into the wagon, he went up the stairs. The owner might be up there. He might as well get started. There were two of them. Lying on a couch was a woman wearing a red housecoat. Her chest rose and fell slowly as she lay there, eyes closed, hands clasped over her stomach. Robert Neville's hands fumbled on the stake and mallet. It was always hard, especially with women. She made no sound except for a sudden, hoarse intake of breath. He moved to the bedroom, stood staring at the small bed by the window, breath shuddering in his chest. Why do they always look like Kathy to me, he thought, drawing out the second stake with shaking hands. Driving away slowly, he tried to forget by wondering why it was that only wooden stakes would work. It seemed fantastic that it had taken him five months to start wondering about it, which brought another question to mind. How was it that he always managed to hit the heart? It had to be the heart. His physician, Dr. Bush, had said so. Yet he, Neville, had no anatomical knowledge. It irritated him that he should have gone through this hideous process so long without stopping once to question it. I should think it over, he thought, collect all the questions before I try to answer them. Things should be done the right way, the scientific way. Yeah, 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 he thought. Shades of old Fritz, his father. Neville had loathed his father's logic, its mechanical facility. His father had died denying the vampire to the very last. At Sears he got the lathe, loaded it, and then searched the store. There were five of them in the basement, hiding in various shadowed places. One of them Neville found inside a display freezer. When he saw the man lying there in this enamel coffin, he had to laugh. It seemed such a funny place to hide. Later he thought of what a humorless world it was when he could find amusement in such a thing. About two o'clock he parked and ate his lunch. Everything seemed to taste of garlic. They were strange, the facts about them. Their staying inside by day, their avoidance of garlic, their death by stake, their reputed fear of crosses, their supposed dread of mirrors. Take that last one. According to legend, they were invisible in mirrors, but he knew that was untrue. "'as untrue as the belief that they transformed into bats. "'It was equally foolish to believe "'they could transform themselves into wolves. "'Without a doubt, there were vampire dogs. "'He had seen and heard them. "'But they were only dogs. "'The time would come when he'd crack it, "'detail for detail. "'But the time wasn't now. "'After lunch, he went from house to house.' and used up all his stakes. He had forty-seven stakes. The strength of the vampire is that no one will believe in him. Thank you, Dr. Van Helsing, he thought, putting down his copy of Dracula. He sat staring moodily at the bookcase, whiskey in hand, a cigarette between his lips. The book was a hodgepodge of superstition and soap opera, but the line was true. No one had believed in them, and how could they fight something they didn't even believe in? Something black and of the night had come crawling out of the Middle Ages, something that had been consigned to fantasy. A tenuous legend passed from century to century. Well, it was true. And before science had caught up with legend, the legend had swallowed science. Swallowed everything. He hadn't found any doweling that day, or checked the generator, or cleaned up the pieces of mirror, nor had he eaten supper. He'd lost his appetite. He couldn't do the things he'd done all afternoon and then come home to a hearty meal, not even after five months. He thought of the twelve children that afternoon and finished his drink in two swallows. Outside, Ben Corkman called for him to come out. Be right out, Benny, he thought, soon as I get my tuxedo on. Be right out. Well, why not? "'It was a sure way to be free of them, be one of them.' "'He chuckled at the simplicity. "'Why not?' his mind plodded on. "'Why go through this when an open door and a few steps would end it all? "'There was, of course, the faint possibility that others like him existed somewhere. "'But how could he find them if they weren't within a day's drive of his house? "'He poured more whiskey into his glass.' Why kid himself? He'd never find anyone else. Well, here we are, kiddies, he thought, sitting like a bug in a rug, surrounded by a battalion of bloodsuckers who wish no more than to sip freely of my 100-proof hemoglobin. Have a drink, men. This one's really on me. His face twisted into an expression of raw hatred. Bastards! "'I'll kill every mother's son of you before I give in.' "'His right hand closed like a clamp, and the glass shattered in his grip. "'He stumbled into the bathroom and washed his hand. "'He bandaged it clumsily, sweat dripping from his forehead. "'I need a cigarette,' he thought. "'What will I do if I ever run out of them?' he wondered. "'Well, there wasn't much chance of that. "'There were about a thousand in Cathy's—' "'He clenched his teeth.' In the larder, he thought, there are about a thousand in the larder, not in Cathy's room. More whiskey. He sat and listened. Outside they prowled and muttered and waited. Friends, he thought, I come before you to discuss the vampire, a minority element, if ever there was one. And there was But to concision, vampires are prejudiced against. But are his needs any more shocking than the needs of animals and other men? All he does is drink blood. Why, then, this unkind prejudice? Why must we seek him out and destroy him? He has no means of support, no education. He has not the voting franchise. No wonder he behaves this way. Sure, sure, he thought, but would you let your sister marry one? Outside the women were there, dresses open or taken off, waiting for his touch, their lips waiting for my blood, my blood. Did they actually think he was going to come out? Maybe I am. Maybe I am, he thought as he jerked off the crossbar from the door. Coming, girls, I'm coming. Wet your lips. They heard the bar being lifted and howls of anticipation sounded in the night. Spinning, he drove his fists into the wall until the plaster cracked and his skin broke. He stood there, trembling helplessly. After a while, he put the bar back across the door and fell into his bed. Oh, God, he thought. How long? How long? The alarm never went off. He'd forgotten to set it. He slept soundly and motionlessly, and when he finally opened his eyes, it was ten o'clock. With a disgusted muttering, he struggled out of bed. Instantly, his head began throbbing. Fine, he thought. A hangover. That's all I need. In the bathroom mirror, his face was gaunt and very much like the face of a man in his forties. He walked slowly into the living room and opened the front door. A curse fell from his lips at the sight of the woman crumpled across the sidewalk. The sky, too, was just as gray and dead. Great, he thought, stalking back into the house. Another day stuck in this rat hole. To hell with it, he thought. I'll get drunk again. But the liquor tasted like turpentine and with a snarl he flung the glass against the wall he sank down on the couch shaking his head slowly it was no use they'd beaten him that restless feeling took hold again it kept building up and suddenly he knew he had to get out of there cloudy day or not he had to get out of there he locked the front door unlocked the garage and dragged up the thick door on its overhead hinges He didn't bother putting down the door. I'll be back soon, he thought. I'll just go away for a while. He backed the station wagon down the driveway and pressed down hard on the accelerator, one roaring sound in the great stillness. He had raced six miles before he knew where he was going. He didn't know he was going to visit Virginia. How long it had been since he had come here? It must have been at least a month. He wished he'd brought flowers, but then he hadn't realized he was coming to the cemetery until he was almost at the gate. His lips pressed together as an old sorrow held him. Why couldn't he have Kathy there, too? Why had he followed so blindly, listening to those fools who set up their stupid regulations during the plague? If only she could be here with her mother... Drawing closer to the crypt, he noticed that the iron door was ajar. Oh, no, he thought. If they've been at her, I'll burn down the city. I swear to God, I'll burn it to the ground if they touch her. He flung open the door, his eyes moving quickly to the sealed casket. It was untouched. As he started in, he saw the man lying in one corner, curled up on the cold floor, With a grunt of rage, Neville dragged him across the floor and threw him violently out onto the grass. He threw out the flowers he'd brought the time before, too, then sat beside the casket, his forehead resting on its side. Silence held him in its cold and gentle hands. If I could die now, he thought, peacefully, gently, without a tremor, if I could be with her... If I could believe, I would be with her. A tear fell across his motionless hand. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.